Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the triggering of Article 50 and the introduction of the Great Repeal Bill. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, James Blitz, Whitehall editor, political correspondent Kate Allen, plus Henry Newman, director of the Open Europe Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. For a change, let's begin with Brexit. And for once, it really has been a big week. On Wednesday at around midday, Theresa May sent her farewell letter to the EU, triggering Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. She addressed the House of Commons to kick off the two-year countdown to leaving the EU at the same time. Aside for a few extra developments on devolution, there was nothing hugely new in what the Prime Minister said, but there was a slightly different tone. Instead of the strident talk about making Britain the Singapore of Europe, it was a different acknowledgement of the difficulties ahead and all friendly talk of a new partnership with the EU. So George Parker, when the Article 50 letter came, it was about six pages. Was it as you expected? And do you agree with me there has been a slight shift in tone from the government? Yeah, I think there's been a definite shift in tone. I think that was the um, most notable factor of the letter, really, was the language, the talk about being a sincere and constructive negotiating position, the fact that there was none of the language that we've heard in the past about the government being prepared to walk away without any deal at all. So I thought the tone was very positive from the government's point of view, with the notable exception, of course, of the perceived threat in the letter, the suggestion that somehow there was going to be some linkage between Britain's security cooperation with Europe and uh, an, e- an economic deal on trade. That was the only bit of code steel that I read. There was no talk of walking away with money or any of that kind of thing. It didn't say we'd withdraw security cooperation, but it would be weaker if there wasn't a deal. And its opinion seems to be split. Some saying it's a statement of the facts, which is that if we have no deal and we bomb out of the EU, then of course ties are going to be weaker until they can be repaired. Well, hopefully at some point. Others say, well, actually, this was a straightforward threat from the UK government saying, you better give us a deal, or if you want cooperation terrorism, it's not going to come from us. What do you think it is? Well, I think it was a statement of fact, but I think it was presented in a clumsy fashion. The fact that you were linking together a number of paragraphs, a security deal and a trade deal, was bound to invite some in the media, particularly the Eurosceptic press, to put the two and two together and say it was a threat. And you saw that with the Sun headline, your money or your life. For example, a bit different uh, from the FT's headline this it, week. Well, well, indeed, because I thought actually, if you cut through it and if you spoke to the European capitals who had been prepared to expect exactly this language about security, there was no reaction there. And I thought that ultimately the story was about the positive tone of this. But facts can be made on the ground by newspaper headlines. People read the newspapers in foreign capitals. And for the following 24, 48 hours, you have people like David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, and Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, going around trying to hose everyone down, just trying to reassure them this wasn't a threat. It was just a statement of fact. Exactly. And we've heard already from some in the EU that the idea of linking economic access with security is not really on the table as far as they see it. Now, obviously, it is there as an issue as part of the negotiation, but they're publicly 
exactly at least saying that they're not going to countenance these two things as linked at all. No, and I think that's right. And I think the Europeans correctly calculate that Britain takes part in these European justice and policing operations because it helps maintain British security. It's a two-way thing. Exactly. It's not just a, a generous gift. And I think there's also an understanding in Europe, because they're used to these kinds of negotiations, that if you're in a negotiating position like Britain, where you've got very few cards in your hands, you need to bring something to the table. Otherwise, you're going to leave with nothing as well. And the fact is that one of the very few things that Britain can bring to the table in this negotiation is the so-called security surplus. And at the very least, it helps to create a sort of atmosphere of goodwill, if you can say you're bringing something to the table. And in Donald Tusk's letter later in the week, where he set out the EU's negotiating position, he talked about the need for a new security partnership. So in any negotiation, you need to create goodwill and the sense of progress towards a common objective, which you can do on security, I think, to help to ease the wheels of a negotiation when they're grinding a bit with things like the money question. One of the things I was quite struck with on Article 50 Day was lack of dissidence from everyone, from both sides, that a lot of the Remain supporters who have been quite vocal about the Prime Minister's strategy seemed to be at least pleased that she was taking a softer, more conciliatory tone. And on the other side of it, the most hardcore Eurosceptics, they just seemed overjoyed. You know, it was mm. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the MP for North East Somerset, said in the House of Commons, it described Theresa May as a 21st century Gloriana returning with her Brexit deal here, which I thought is an interesting thing to look forward to because, for me, this is the peak of Theresa May's authority over UK politics, that from both sides there's no opposition at all, nobody is saying, they would have done things differently. You know, I spoke to a former aide of David Cameron's recently who'd said if we were in this position, we would have done everything exactly as Theresa May has done it. So there's a general consensus around that, but soon she's going to have to compromise, whether it's security, whether it's money, or whether it's trade, or whether it's a transition deal. But the fact is, at the moment, she's in a good place. That could all fall apart very quickly when the talks begin. Yes, it could. And I think you make a very interesting point that both sides seem to be pulling their punches at the moment. And there's an iron discipline, particularly on the side of the uh, Eurosceptic wing of the party. As you say, this is the moment they've been waiting for. The Britain's exit from the EU is now underway. It would seem churlish of them to be critical of the Prime Minister at this stage. But you're right that the concessions will come. Now, it will be interesting to see if at some point John Major's prediction that these people who are now being very loyal will one day turn against her come true because the fact is in any negotiation you start quite high and you end up somewhere in the middle and that gap between the middle and the high starting point is the area that the Eurosceptics will be worried about because the concessions will all be those which upset the Eurosceptic wing of the party not the pro-European side. So we've got three issues that when these talks begin, that's not going to be for a while yet, it's in the summer that both sides want to get sorted very early on. We heard that from Michelle Barnier who wrote in the FT this week outlining essentially Europe's store for the beginning of their negotiations and from Theresa May in the letter. And the first one is the so-called Brexit bill. This is how much money the UK owes the EU for commitments. And based on who you talk to, it could be a number from zero to 60 billion. There's a big gap there. And the most interesting thing of this was a paper from the Bruegel Think Tank, which is a very well-respected institution in Brussels, which suggested that the figure will probably fall somewhere in the middle at around 30 billion euros. Now, to me, it would just seem the most sensible thing for Theresa May to, to get that as low as possible spread it out as long as possible and just move on from it because it's clearly going to be a sticking point. But do you think her party would let her do that? I think so. And I think if you look at any any negotiation, the Bruegel think tank seems to have taken the 60 billion euro starting point of the European Commission and the zero starting point of some Eurosceptics and split the difference. And we probably will end up somewhere in the middle, but it's not actually a legal issue. It's more of a political issue, really, how much Britain is prepared to pay for access and for continuing participation in various programmes in the European Union. Can she sell that politically? 
I think she probably can. I think probably anything above £20 billion starts to get a little bit tricky. But don't forget, in the end, the Eurosceptic wing of the party focused on one thing, which is getting out of the European Union. If that money can be spread, as you suggest, over a number of years, it can be dressed up in different ways, paying for security programmes, maybe paying for science or science or security facilities in Eastern Europe, something like that. That can be made to sound okay, particularly if business is egging Theresa May on and saying we need to make this payment to get good access to the single market. Second thing is going to be citizens' rights, and I think both sides are very clear that they want to secure them, and how and exactly this happens is quite complicated, but essentially or EU citizens in Britain will be allowed to stay, I think. We don't know yet when the cut-off point is going to be. There was talk that it might be Article 50 day, but I don't think we've had confirmation of that. Then in return, it's going to be the same thing for British citizens abroad. And again, from both sides, there seems to be a general consensus. They don't want to start uprooting millions of people. No, I think this cut-off date will actually be the day when we leave the EU in 2019. I think the Article 50 thing has been blown out of the water slightly. I think you're right. I mean, what you're focusing here is on the three first things that come up in the negotiation. The money, the citizens' rights, and then the question of the border in Northern Ireland. That's the now, third one. That's the third one. So you've got three things that think there. The toughest one by a mile is the money. Yeah. But the other two things are technically extremely difficult to sort out. Politically but, easier. But political, politically much easier, because if you think about it, the interests of Britain and the EU are aligned in both cases. They both want to guarantee the rights of citizens living in the UK and abroad, and they both want to have a frictionless border in Northern Ireland and no disruption to the peace process. So it's quite clever, I think, the way that those three things have been bundled together. Going back to what I was saying earlier, in a negotiation, you need progress on some things, even while things are getting a bit bogged down on the other thing, which in this case will almost certainly be the money. The one thing I would say about the money is there won't be an upfront agreement on the sum, the precise sum. There'll be an agreement of some sort on the mechanisms or the parameters, how you might work the sum up. But the money will be still in play, I predict, on the very last night of this negotiation, probably sometime in October 2018. And the reason I mention these three things, because we obviously have heard from Donald Tusk, president of the European Council, who said, we're already sad to see you go. But he has said that if enough progress is made on the divorce talks, then talks on trade can begin. And that's been a real bonus, I think, for Britain to hear that this week, because this is what David Davis, the Brexit secretary, has been saying, that we need to talk about divorce and trade at the same time. Whereas up until now, Europe's always said, we're just going to talk about divorce. Trade might come later. We've now actually got in quite firm terms from Mr Tusk that if progress is made on these three issues, I would contend, then we can begin talk on trade. And that will again try and keep people at home a bit happier, even as it gets contentious. Yes, I mean, it depends. The language in Donald Tusk's letter, I think, is significant. So you can use the word significant twice here, because what he talks about is the need to make significant progress on the uh, discussion on money. And that could mean quite a lot of progress, or it could actually mean not very much. In Brussels, it's a very flexible expression. My reading of that was, like yours, that Don Tusk is actually providing a bit of scope here bit for, of the, cover, for the EU to start talking about trade earlier on rather than later on. My colleague Alex Barker takes the view that it could be much tougher and that the EU could demand that significant progress means really quite a lot of progress on the money before we start talking about trade. But either way, I predict that by the end of this year, we'll be on to the trade discussion. So, Henry Newman, what did you make of the Article 50 letter this week? And as I was just saying to George, the government's approach was definitely softer than it was in the Prime Minister's Lancaster House speech in January and her speech to the Conservative conference last year, which took very strident rhetoric that I think actually turned off some European capitals. This time, it was almost a love letter in a way, talking about new partnerships while acknowledging the difficulties of what is to come. 
Yes, I think that's fair enough. I think the tone was very constructive overall. And partly she's now got the political space to be able to do that because she has convinced the Conservative Party and also the country that she's serious about this. She was, of course, somebody who herself was a Remainer, although she said the sky would not fall in either way. But I think because she's now convinced the country and the Conservative Party that she's serious about Brexit, she's got a bit more political space and therefore she's been able to strike a very constructive and sensible tone going into these negotiations. And we've seen that tone actually mirrored on the European side today by the President of the European Council. Yes, so obviously Donald Tusk has responded and on the day the letter was delivered in Brussels, you know, he said, we miss you already. And he said that Brexit is going to be bad enough, so we're not going to try and make it any harder, which is what you would expect him to say at this juncture. But the most interesting thing in the letter is clearly this reference to security and the idea that the UK is sort of just dang a little bit of danger threat there, saying to the EU, if you don't give us a deal, if we end up bombing out on WTO terms, then our security collaboration is going to be weaker. Do you think that was a wise idea? So, yes, I think it was a statement of the totally obvious. I think if we don't secure a deal with Europe and we leave without any sort of transitional arrangement or any sort of future framework, then that means that the very structures on which our security cooperation work currently, for example... Will be eroded. Well, they won't be there. So the sharing of information on passengers on planes relies on an architecture put in place by the European Union. Now, of course, it's perfectly possible for us to do that from outside. But if there is a failure to achieve a deal, that will affect security. It's a statement of the obvious. And I also think another factor is important here. If around that negotiating table, the 28 countries descend into um, acrimony, then that will mean that it's much harder to seek agreement, for example, on sanctions or other security aspects. So there's also that angle that if we fail to achieve a deal because our relations are broken down, our relations are broken down and that will affect security. So I don't think it was an unreasonable thing to say, actually. Let's just talk about transition for a moment, because, as you said, we've heard from Mr Tusk, who says that if enough progress is made on some of the key areas, which essentially means money and Northern Ireland and EU citizens, then we can begin to talk about trade. But still hasn't been much talk about this transition deal. And clearly, the UK doesn't want to find ourselves sitting here this day in two years' time with having this cliff edge. They want to have a smooth landing out of the EU. But Mr Tusk also said that the full freedom while you're in the single market are not divisible. So that means if we remain in the single market as part of the transition, that means no reduction in migration and no lessening control of the ECJ. And politically for Theresa May, that's very difficult to square with the electorate. Well, that might be difficult, but I think overall Mr Tusk's draft guidelines for the negotiations, and they are just draft at this stage, were very constructive and there was nothing particularly surprising there. And in fact, what we have seen is a dilution of the points on, for example, the so-called divorce bill. There was no number put on the table in these draft negotiating guidelines. Mr Juncker had deviated from his position that there could be no negotiation without notification and has repeatedly waived different numbers. In fact, with your editor, he talked about over 60 billion euros. Otherwise, we've heard figures ranging from 20 to 60 billion euros. Those numbers were entirely absent from these draft negotiating guidelines. So I suspect that actually the council, which of course is setting the mandate for the commission's negotiation, will find that cooler heads prevail there because that's where actually the heads of state and the heads of government come together. And we know that it's in the interests of those capitals across the 27 to find a good deal with Britain. And you're right that, of course, in terms of the actual transitional arrangements, there will be problems to resolve. And the EU has been broadly clear that a transitional deal will require the structures of the the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, as an overseer. But 
Again, I think the key point here is actually that the council has entered into a very constructive spirit on the negotiations. And how confident do you feel about getting a deal at the end of this? Because people that I've spoken to in DEGSU, the Department of Exit in the EU and what have you, think that there's a 30% chance that we won't get a deal. And in European capitals, it's even closer to 50% because obviously the whole process is so complex. Now, I agree with you entirely that it's been a very good start, probably the best start you could hope for given the circumstances, Yes, but there's still going to be a lot of bumps ahead. Look, it is complicated, absolutely. I think there are broadly two options, one of which is that if the bureaucrats and the officials in Brussels particularly running the commission seek to drive the agenda or allow to drive the agenda, they will say this is all very bureaucratic and all extraordinarily complicated, but we know that the economic case is overwhelming for a proper agreement on future trade between the UK and the EU, also on customs cooperation, something that my think tank did some work on this week. Because you're open, you have advocates that we should jettison the customs union as well as the single market, which Theresa May has fudged slightly. She so far hasn't completely committed to that. But we're clear that unless we leave the customs union, that we can't seize the opportunities of Brexit. And yes, there are some costs from leaving the customs union, but net, there'll be many more benefits from leaving and being able to not just sign future trade agreements with the rest of the world, but more importantly, have actual control over our overall trade policy. But to go back to the the macro question of will we get a deal or not, it comes down to politics. And I think if cooler heads and member states, capitals and governments in particular want to get a deal, then we will get a deal and the difficulties will be ironed out and it is all soluble. So I can't comment on the, the Dexu suggestion of a third, but it doesn't sound outside of the realms of reasonableness that there's a broadly two thirds chance of getting a deal. So I'm pretty optimistic at this point. The other big Brexit news this week has been the Great Repeal Bill, which was announced on Thursday. It might be great, but it's not really repealing anything. This is a huge piece of legislation which is going to import about 19,000 EU laws into the British statute books after Brexit. And as you can guess, such a big piece has been pretty controversial. So, James Blitz, can you just begin by outlining what the point of this bill is? Because essentially this is saying we've been a member of the EU in various forms for 43 years. Our laws are intertwined on the day that we leave the EU, whenever that day is. that law must have to continue and that's what this is about. So can you explain what the bill will do and why it's controversial? Yes, what's basically happening is this. The government recognises that there's the possibility of having a lot of regulatory uncertainty when we leave the EU. So what it's saying is we will take the entire body of EU law as it currently stands, about 19,000 items, and we're going to bring it into UK law. So that's there. It's then saying we're going to amend bits of that so-called acquis so that it is in line and makes sense with the situation that we're in once we leave. And that should be a technical amendment process that doesn't carry out an enormous amount of reform, but basically, for example, where there's a reference to an EU body, then refers to a UK body. Alongside that, there will be the passing of quite a large number of primary bills primary legislation. Talking about 13 or so. Yeah, 13 or so. Actually, 15 is what people will roughly say, which is going to basically change UK policy completely on areas like immigration, customs, trade, and new agriculture policy, and so on. So it's an enormous legislative programme. And the Great Repeal Bill, which, as you say, doesn't actually repeal anything. It actually just brings everything onto the statute book and then makes amendments. That's at the centre of it. So, Kate Allen, the real controversial thing has been 
been this tweaking thing, the idea that when these laws are imported, they're going to need to be changed. Now, as James said, it could just be scribbling out the word EU and putting the word UK instead. But it could actually be used to make much more sweeping changes. And this is the so-called Henry VIII powers. Can you explain what these are? And do you actually think there's much prospect of the government making big changes? Because we've already seen how controversial that would be. Yes, so Henry VIII powers are a kind of a nickname given to the power to change legislation without going through the full legislative process of Parliament. So it's an immense power that could be used by the executive. And it's called Henry VIII powers because Henry VIII famously used similar powers to kind of rule by decree during his time. So it is what some members of the House of Lords have called potentially a vast executive power grab, bypassing Parliament, fundamentally anti-democratic is what they argue. Now, the government understands that this is a very sensitive thing. However, from their position, they feel as though they don't really have much choice because we don't know what the terms of the deal will be yet. And obviously, we can't risk falling off a legislative and legal cliff in March 2019 when we leave the EU. So the government needs to be able to amend laws to implement the terms of the deal, which we don't yet know what they are. So therefore, they can't implement those terms specifically. They have to be able to change the law in this sweeping fashion. They realise it's controversial. They have promised that there will be sunset clauses on these powers, which means they'll only be able to exercise them for a certain amount of time, the time that they say is necessary to make the legal changes needed to execute Britain's exit from the EU and the subsequent terms of the deal that we agree. However, it remains to be seen how much of a battle they're going to face from peers and MPs on this point. Because there's not really any alternative, Kate, is there? Because it would either be blocking up Parliament for the next, who knows how many years and decades, to replace all these laws. So those who are saying this has to be done it are simply and there is really no alternative here and on the oversight thing one suggestion I've heard this week is there could be a new select committee or some kind of body like that that would be able to call relevant secretaries of state to ask why they are changing laws in certain ways do you think that's a possibility? Well the white paper this week said that they would use the normal secondary legislation process to go about this. Uh, the normal secondary legislation process, uh, secondary legislation, I should say, is a, is a kind of a less sweeping form of scrutiny. So primary legislation is a, is a bill, it's an act of parliament, it goes through both houses of parliament, MPs and peers can amend it, can force the government to consider amendments, and so on, and then it faces this final stage called ping-pong, where the two houses bat it back and forth until they're both settled on it. A statutory instrument, by contrast, can only be a yes or no answer. So you can't amend it, you can't change it. And that is a fundamental issue in situations such as this where peers and MPs are concerned that actually the changes seeking to be made through statutory instruments could be quite substantive, quite significant, and could require enormous technical expertise in terms of understanding what the consequences of them will be. So therefore they want to see, as you say, some form of additional scrutiny process, such as a committee, some ability to consult with experts, perhaps issuing them for a certain number of weeks on a consultational basis before the wording of them is finally agreed. However, the White Paper this week did not give any concessions on that point and merely said we're going to use the normal statutory instrument process to do all of this. And James, the other element that's raised some eyebrows has been about the European Court of Justice because Theresa May has made a red line in her Brexit negotiations that the ECJ will not have any primary jurisdiction over the UK in the future. But that's not quite what's going to be in the Great Repeal Bill because all the past case law is going to stand. A lot of those controversial rulings that I think 
contributed to Brexit in the first place are going to stand until they are then superseded in the future. And there's going to be a lot of people on the right of the Conservative Party who will be quite unhappy at that. Yes, they will be. But the reality is that the idea of making a completely clean break with the ECJ... It's another Tina alternative. There is no alternative. I mean, it's simply not possible to do it. It just isn't. Because if you just take a look, at, for example, at the entire industrial sector in the UK, areas like chemicals, aviation and so on, they come under about 34 regulatory bodies, all of which operate under... European Court of Justice law. If you suddenly turn around to these industries in the UK and say, right, you're coming away from that, they're effectively in a regulatory no man's land unless you can set something up brand new in the UK. And I think the government is beginning to concede that the idea of setting up 34 new regulatory bodies in the two years we've got is just unthinkable. And so there is going to have to be some overlap. This idea that there can be a bonfire of all ECJ regulations in the UK in the next two years... It's just not practical. And if the far right of the Conservative Party wants to go to the wall over it, there's going to be a real problem, I think. I think it's going to be the future-looking element that's the key thing on this, because I think Mrs May's obviously calculated that, as you said, it would be far too complicated to do this if you tied up to everything else we've got to do in the two years of the Article 50 talks. But I think it's making sure where the ECJ's role is in the future. And she sort of fudged that a bit this week when she was talking about Brexit, because obviously I think the idea that the ECJ will rule on human rights and what have you, that is going to be a red line, but it still may have a role to play in trade negotiations in the future. Kate, just talk briefly about devolved administrations, because one of the things we did hear from the government this week was the first hint that any of these returned powers from Brussels might not stick in Westminster. They might go to Edinburgh, Cardiff or Belfast. There's not been any details on that, but this begins to be looking like something the government to appease those concerns from Scottish nationalists and Irish nationalists that Westminster is dictated down to them. And there might be some sort of collaboration here on the Brexit process, which has obviously riled a lot of people in the different corners of the kingdom. Yes, so nationalist fears were first raised by our the FT's reporting, in fact, of these Henry VIII powers that the government wants back in January. Because the key point which many people don't appreciate is that what is known as the Sewell Convention, the obligation of the Westminster government to consult the devolved administrations, does not apply to secondary legislation. Now, obviously, the Henry VIII powers will involve giving the government the right to do a vast number of things through secondary legislation, which the devolved administrations would therefore not have a say over. So we immediately started to see um, Scottish nationalist fears in particular that somehow this was going to mean them being overridden and Westminster effectively acquiring all of these powers from the EU, not passing them on. Now, David Davis moved this week to assuage those fears. He promised in the white paper that they will be seeing a substantial increase in decision-making in the devolved administrations as Westminster passes some of the powers which it repatriates from Brussels on to them. And he also promised, which I thought was a very interesting development, that this power, this Henry VIII power to amend rules through secondary legislation, would also be passed on to the devolved administrations in areas where they currently make policy in those areas so that they will be able to change the rules themselves through this process. So that seems to me to be quite a significant offer of power moving down to the devolved administration level. And finally, James, I suppose the real challenge is not the point at which we leave the EU. It's in, say, five years after that. And Michel Barnier, who's the EU's chief negotiator on Brexit, has said that's where his real concern is, because we've seen that British law is going to look pretty similar to EU law as it is now the day that we leave. But it's where the UK goes in the future 
future? Do we have one day a bonfire of regulations? Do we take a different approach towards employment or what have you? Because when you're trying to negotiate that free trade deal with the EU, they're not going to want to do a deal where the market's going to somehow undercut theirs. And that's the real challenge for British laws makers, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. I think it's important to view this thing in the following way. I think between now and the time we leave, and the House of Lords Select Committee said this a few weeks ago in its report on the Great Repeal Bill, it's important that what Parliament does is, and ministers do is to put through technical amendments that make the law look more coherent and more clear and make sense, but that they restrict it to that. There's obviously a much deeper level which is after 2020, when, once it has brought everything into the acquis, Parliament can begin to say, well, we really want to change, say... The Working Time Directive. The Working Time Directive, European Employment Law. But these are manifesto issues, I think, for the parties at the next general election. They need to put to the British people their deeper commitments on reform and leave that to a much later date. What I think people are worried about is that some ministers might try to use these Henry VIII powers to make these quite big reforms far too too early and that's where I think there could be some complications far better to leave that till later I think that's true and I think that essentially after you know we leave the EU two years today essentially you know this time in two years article 50 will be over and we'll be out of the EU hopefully with an exit deal by that point and I can't imagine that much will change between then the next general election because if Mrs May sticks to her plan and has a vote in 2020 I think that year period will just be about smoothing everything over and trying to keep the economy on the road not radically changing employment law but we'll wait and see. That's it for this week's episode of FDE Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We're we'll back for another instalment. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.